not many of us in this life are able to do what we may have dreamt of doing as a child. When we thought about or were asked what we'd like to be or do when we grow up. And I think it's safe to say that a majority of us never reach that goal for a variety of reasons. Maybe it's because we did not possess the skill set to achieve the highest levels of whatever it is that we dreamt of doing for a living as a child. Maybe our parents never fostered our dreams and helped us achieve them by enrolling us in the classes or lessons or sports that were required in order to excel in that which we sought to be at the highest level. Or maybe we married early and had kids or just had kids and those pressing responsibilities took precedent over our own dreams. And then, year after year races by and in the blink of an eye, you're 40 and whatever it is or was that you envisioned yourself doing in this life seems to have passed you by and now is unattainable or at least it seems that way. Most of us come to realize over time that once you get sucked into the rat race, it becomes increasingly more difficult to change course midstream and chase those dreams. And oftentimes, it's simply not practical. There are bills to pay and mouths to feed. So day after day, we go through the grind until one day we realize that we've gotten old and life has passed us by. Now, don't get me wrong here. I am in no way saying that because we didn't end up doing what we dreamt of doing as a child, that we aren't able to lead a happy life, or at least as happy as life lets us be. Because as I have said many times during the course of this podcast, life is brutal. But notwithstanding that fact, it is a wild ride worth taking. And if we can simply focus on what we do have and what we have accomplished, as opposed to ruminating constantly about what we don't have and haven't done, well, life can be and is pretty damn fulfilling. Look, the reality is that we are all constantly being sold via TV, movies, social media commercials, all the things that we need the things that we must do and possess in order to achieve happiness. And I will tell you this unequivocally, that's all bullshit. None of that matters. Not really. What matters is the people in our lives, the relationships with our family and our friends. What makes us happy is a deep connection to others. Don't fear. We've not switched up the podcast genres on you here. And you may be sitting there listening to this, thinking to yourself that I'm completely wrong. That if you had a million dollars and a stunning home and an expensive car, that you'd be happy. And maybe you would. But what if you had all the material things that you could ever dream of and you had no one to share it with? No, I will never be convinced that stuff matters. It's the people that matter. But what if you have those people and you are one of those unfortunate souls that never comes to realize that it's those people in your life, the real ones, that would allow you to feel fulfilled and loved. That, to me, is the saddest of all stories. And it is one that is told far too often, and which I believe is the story that Anthony Garcia lived. And whether or not at the end of this pod, you deem him to be guilty of the crimes which he will be accused of. 
know one immutable truth about him. He believed he was alone in this world. He of course wasn't because his family loved him dearly, but it was never about what they felt for him. What it was to Anthony Garcia was that he was never able to truly connect with another human being, maybe ever, which left him in the prison of his own mind, utterly and devastatingly alone. Anthony sifted through the mail that had just been delivered to his parents' home that afternoon. He had moved back home after he had graduated from Cal State in LA in order to try and figure out exactly what he should do next with his life. Both Fred and Estella Garcia were adamant with their firstborn that he needed to further his education and get an advanced degree, in particular, either in medicine or the law. Accordingly, he took both the LSAT and the MCAT, which are the entrance exams for law school and medical school, respectively. The problem was for Anthony is that he wasn't particularly enamored with either potential profession, and that showed in his preparation for and ultimately his performance on both exams. See, Anthony was like most of us. What mattered most to him at that point in his life was making his parents proud. And what that meant to him was that he had to give up what he enjoyed most, which was math. He had always been a math guy growing up. It's what had always interested him. And because of that, it's what he excelled in. The rub is that being a mathematician, at least in his parents' estimation, did not amount to a real career, other than maybe teaching. And quite simply, that is not what his parents had envisioned for him. So, like anything that any of us do begrudgingly, as opposed to passionately, the end result, his scores on both exams, reflected precisely the amount of desire that he had for either profession. So, it became routine for Anthony to sort through the mail on a daily basis, find a letter from a various law school or medical school admissions office, tear it open, and read the following. Dear Mr. Garcia, after careful consideration of your application, we regret to inform you. And he didn't need to read any further. No, instead he took the envelope along with the rejection letter, tore it up, shoved it deep into the garbage, and then emptied the bag into the waiting receptacle outside of the house, which would soon be carried far, far away from his parents' home. But today was going to be a very different day. As he made his way through the various bills and junk mail, he stopped at a thin letter from the admission office of the medical school at the University of Utah. Now, understand that at this point, Anthony had become accustomed to the width of the envelope being an excellent indicator of what was contained inside. If it was thin, it was thanks but no thanks, rejection. And because he had not received any acceptance letters, he assumed that those envelopes would be thick, packed with forms that needed to be filled out and sent back. So with that as his mindset, he pulled the flimsy envelope out of the stack of mail and stared at it, knowing 
exactly what it was going to say. That shitty feeling that he got in the pit of his stomach every time he laid his eyes on one of these letters visited him once again, and he couldn't stand it. He couldn't stand the feeling. Now, if you're under the impression that being rejected for something that you didn't really want to do or feared doing because you didn't know if you could do it provides you with some solace, well, it doesn't because rejection sucks in all forms. And constant rejection, as you can imagine, is infinitely worse and completely disheartening. So when Anthony Garcia tore open the envelope and read, Mr. Garcia, after careful consideration of your application, we are pleased to inform you. He nearly fainted, but he didn't. Instead, he read it over and over and over. Holy shit, I got in. He then yelled, yes, at the top of his lungs to no one other than himself as his parents were both still at work and his siblings at school. And as much as he wanted to call both of his parents immediately to tell them the incredibly good news, he decided to wait to tell them in person because it would be a better moment because it was their dream, not his. And when it did happen later that day, it was most likely the best moment of Anthony Garcia's life as both of his parents shed tears of joy as they hugged their son and expressed just how proud they were of him. Sharing this moment with his parents was as good as life can get. And it was these types of moments that would become more and more rare for Anthony Garcia as he navigated throughout his life. Because ultimately, his schooling and then work would take him far, far away from the two people that loved him most. And this would lead him to what most of us fear more than anything, which is being truly alone. Diaries. I'm your host, Bob Mata, and this is episode 10. Cinders and judges and family grudges. We left off with OPD working their way through their very limited list of suspects in the Hunter Sherman killings. Kelly's boyfriend appears to have a solid alibi as he was working on the 13th of March, and frankly, many of those involved in the investigation have serious doubts that he could be capable of what seems to be a well-thought-out and apparently perfectly executed crime. So while there appears to be some semblance of a motive, the other parts of the crime, such as the means and opportunity, seem to be lacking in any real capacity. So while the boyfriend has not been completely cleared, Omaha PD has focused their attention on other leads, such as Adrian Lepore and former Creighton resident Michael Blanke, Omaha PD interviewed Lepore, and based on that conversation, they need to follow up on some of the information that was provided by him as to his whereabouts on the day of the killings. 
Now, while there have been many calls that have come into the tip line regarding Lepore looking a lot like the composite, the theory that he may have mistaken the hunter's home for his former girlfriend's employer's house and then went in and committed these horrible acts seems tenuous at best. And quite frankly, Lepore seems to fit in the same category as Kelly's boyfriend in that it seems highly unlikely for many reasons that he could have pulled off these killings without being detected. As far as the Russian doctor goes, Omaha PD is just starting to dig in on this potential person of interest, starting with trying to figure out just where exactly he is currently located. Meanwhile, detectives Moise and Warner are looking very closely at Tom Hunter's online activities in the hopes that they can ensnare an online predator that has left the comfort of sitting behind his computer screen and has taken to murdering people in real life. Their first interview was with a young woman who was an online friend of Tom's, which ultimately did not bear much fruit for the boys in blue, other than to alert both detectives to the fact that there appeared to be people in the Yville site that are not age-appropriate. So while this fact is far from a smoking gun, it does nothing to dissuade either man from believing that this is a potential lead that must be closely examined. Another avenue that OPD has been examining is trying to find a link, any link, between the Blanchard murder and the Hunter Sherman murders, with all the victims being found with knives from the home being left in the victim's necks, which is highly unusual. At this point of the investigation, OPD has been unable to discover that common link between the two sets of killings. But this, like everything else, is still on the table as a possibility. Officer Yetz, in the meantime, is keeping herself very busy, and she, like every other cop in Omaha, is anxiously awaiting the lab results on the prints and DNA to see if they will get a hit. Now, we're all caught up. So let's dig in. Omaha PD continues to hit dead end after dead end with every route they take in the investigation. As they watch the hours turn into days, which turn into weeks, and then months. All the while, they don't appear to be getting any closer to naming a suspect in the Hunter Sherman killings. But this circumstance is not a result of a lack of effort. As I said when we first got involved in the case in 2013, if in fact they got the right man when they arrested Anthony Garcia, after reviewing the discovery, it appeared that OPD had left no stone unturned during the initial investigation of the Hunter-Sherman killings. That was, of course, our first impression. And as it turned out, there was one stone that did remain unturned. A stone that was handed to them on a silver platter by an employee of Creighton named Miss Alberico. And that stone being left undisturbed may have resulted in very deadly consequences five years later, which we will get into in the very near future. For now, let's focus on directly what's in front of us. Towards the end of April of 2008, in the beginning of May, the comparisons on latent prints were starting to come back from the lab. Of all the latents that had been sent to the lab, only four of them remained unidentified, as the rest had all been identified as belonging to either the victims or Hunter family members. 
The four remaining unidentified latents were compared to the exemplars of Adrian Lepore and Kelly's boyfriend's prints that were found in the system. The lab reported that no identifications were made as a result of the comparisons of the two men and the latents that had been found at the scene. All of the results were verified by peer review. The latent prints developed at the scene would continue to remain at the crime lab for comparison if and when Omaha PD is able to identify a viable suspect. What is becoming abundantly clear is that all the work that has been done in the last two months has gotten them nowhere closer to a suspect. And the frustration from all sides starting to build as everybody wants answers. Yet, at this point in time, there simply are none to give. Now, one part of Omaha's investigation that we have not discussed at length is the use of polygraphs with people that law enforcement believe need to be looked at more closely early on in the investigation. If you'll recall in season one, Lieutenant Kozenzak fancied himself a polygraph examiner as he had given Michael Rossi, David Cram, and others lie detector tests in order to find the elusive link between Gacy and Peast. Now here, some 30 plus years later, Omaha PD is in virtually the same position as they desperately search for a suspect. And while Omaha considers the polygraph to be a good investigatory tool, we here at the diaries have been giving it short shift. Now, if you're asking yourself, why is that, Bob? Well, I'm glad that you asked because it's your favorite time and it's my favorite time. It's what's the deal with the polygraph test time. What's the deal with polygraph test time? The primary reason why I have not been giving any love to the polygraph examinations given by OPD is because from a defense attorney's perspective, I typically don't concern myself with polygraphs or the results of them because they are not allowed to be introduced into evidence in Illinois, nor in Nebraska for that matter. Now, much of the information that we are sharing with you is coming from an article published by the American Psychological Association on August 5th of 2004 called The Truth About Lie Detectors, which is a bit long on the tooth. So we also took a peek at a more recent article called Do Lie Detectors Really Work? Written by Christian Hart, PhD, in January of 2020 for a magazine called Psychology Today. And so far as the science side of this discussion, that's our source material. We also took a look at an article or two published by the American Polygraph Association, but we're taking a pass on citing them because, well, biased much? So we will stick with the scientific organizations that have no skin in the game in order to determine if there is any science actually involved in the use of a polygraph machine. Now, we're assuming that everyone has heard of polygraph tests or lie detector tests. But you may not know exactly how they are supposed to work and what they measure in order to determine if someone is being deceptive when answering a question. So these machines, like everything else technology-based, have improved over time. And as much as I would enjoy getting into the historical development of the lie box, I can't help but think back to a conversation that I had with my wife, Allison, after she listened to the first It's Your Favorite Time of season two about victimology, she felt that that was a bit too academic. And she told me that it might have been the first time that she may have been a bit bored during our pod. I was, of course, crushed and got super defensive. 
It was much like the time that a listener told me that our original cover art of The Bloody Diary looked like an ice cream sandwich. I could not unsee the ice cream sandwich with some kind of delicious raspberry syrup drizzled all over it. So we had to change it. As such, my conversation with Allison had the same effect. So no history lesson for you. With all that being said, the current iteration of the lie box has sensors that are strapped to the subject's fingers, arms, and chest in order to take real-time measurements during questioning. The physiological reactions are measured and charted as the subject answers questions, which are asked by the examiner. Now, if there is a major spike during the questioning, which may be caused by a sudden increase in the subject's heart rate, this can be an indication that the subject is nervous because they are being deceptive. Now, immediately, the first issue that comes to my mind with this is that all of us would experience some level of nervousness when being strapped to a machine. So how do the examiners distinguish between overall general nervousness and spikes that occur when a certain question is asked, such as, did you kill your wife? It's an interesting question, and this is how it's done. So first, many times the examiner will give what they call a pretest before the subject is hooked up. The examiner will explain the technique that will be employed during the course of the exam and will review the questions that will be asked during the polygraph exam itself. Yeah, as you can imagine, this gets the subject thinking and worrying about certain questions, especially when they start pondering the more general control questions. Okay, but what's a general control question, Bob? Well, that is a question which relates to a prior bad act that is similar in nature to the crime that is being investigated, such as, have you ever betrayed your wife? As opposed to the relevant question, which would be, did you kill your wife? Now, while the examiner may tell the subject the questions that will be asked, they are not telling them the difference between a control question and a relevant question. No, that stays in the back pocket of the examiner. So once the pretest is done, the subject is then hooked up and the examiner employs the control question test. In this particular version of a polygraph exam, the examiner begins under the assumption that a person that is telling the truth will fear the control questions much more than the relevant question because they, in fact, did not kill their wife. They may have betrayed their wife in a multitude of ways. So as the polygraph test is administered, the examiner, quote, compares responses to the relevant questions like, did you kill your wife? With their responses to the control questions like, have you betrayed your wife? The control questions are designed to heighten a subject's concern about their past truthfulness, while the relevant question inquires about a crime that the subject knows they did not commit. So at the end of the day, if an examiner notes a pattern of heightened physiological responses to relevant questions, as opposed to the control questions, the examiner will determine that the subject is being deceptive. On the other hand, if there is a heightened response to the control questions as opposed to the relevant questions, the examiner will determine that the subject is not being deceptive. 
If there is no difference noted between the responses of the control questions and the relevant questions, the examiner determines that these results are inconclusive. Now, I hope you came out of that understanding how the control question test works. If you didn't, maybe check out those articles. They go into it a bit more. Now, there are multiple approaches to the polygraph tests, but we're not going to go through them all because it would eat up the entire episode. But there is another interesting one, which is called the guilty knowledge test. Now, in this test, it includes a series of multiple choice questions concerning knowledge that only a guilty person would know, such as, was the amount stolen 1,000, 5,000, or 10,000? If only the guilty suspect could know the answer to that question, the heightened physiological response to the subject hearing the correct amount stolen would indicate deception. So those are a couple of ways that the tests are administered. And as you can see, calling them reliable scientifically is arguable, which is why they are not admissible in court across the board. Now, the U.S. Supreme Court has left it up to the individual states to decide for themselves whether or not they should be admissible. But as far as the federal courts go, the high court has commented that there is no reliable scientific evidence regarding the accuracy of polygraphs. And there is no agreement across the board as to the reliability within the legal community. That being said, at least 23 states currently allow polygraph results, but most of them require that both parties stipulate before trial that the results will be admissible. So as far as admissibility in courts, the states, and the world for that matter, are all over the place. There is no uniform decision on whether or not they should be admissible. As an attorney, that fact alone scares the hell out of me. What also scares me is the concept of false positives and the fact that there is no actual technique to verify the results. The combination of all those factors make the concept of allowing polygraphs to be admissible as evidence a terrifying prospect, especially when one's liberty is at stake. All that being said, I'm more than satisfied that in Illinois, they remain nothing more than a useful investigatory tool for law enforcement. So that's it. Lesson over. If you're thinking to yourself, well, Bob, that was interesting, but why did you tell us about polygraphs? Well, the reason is that Omaha PD employed them left and right during the Hunter and Sherman investigation. For instance, they polygraphed Shirley's daughter, Kelly. She was found to be not deceptive. Her boyfriend was also examined in June of 08. The relevant questions that all of these subjects were asked were, do you know for sure who stabbed Shirley and Thomas that resulted in their deaths? And did you inflict the stab wounds to Shirley and Thomas resulting in their deaths? Now, if you learned anything in our little lesson above, you will know that those are both relevant questions and not control questions. As far as Kelly's boyfriend, he was found to be not deceptive in his answers to both those questions. But they weren't done there. They also polygraphed Shirley's son, Jeff. He was also asked the same questions. He also passed. Bill Hunter was then asked to submit, and of course, he did. He was asked the very same questions as the others, and the examiner determined that his results were inconclusive. Now, despite this result, 
There is no part of me that believes for one moment that Bill Hunter had anything to do with what happened to his son and Shirley. And it has everything to do with his ability to display little or no affect in the face of an incredibly stressful situation. Think about the original interviews with police and his call with his wife, Claire, when he informs her that their son had been killed. He simply has the uncanny ability to control his emotions better than the rest of us. And his results on the polygraph are a perfect example of why I am opposed to them being admitted as evidence in criminal cases. Now, I would hazard to guess that if you were sitting on a jury, and I'm talking about you, the listeners, and heard a polygraph result get introduced into evidence that a suspect had taken a lie box and was asked if they knew who for sure had killed the victims, and if in fact they did kill the victims, and the results came back as inconclusive, that may not make you think guilty immediately, but if it's a completely circumstantial case and you are having to make a two-column guilty or not guilty checklist, that inconclusive is definitely falling into the guilty column. And when a case is that tough for a jury to decide, the last thing that I want as a determining factor is an inconclusive polygraph result. That concept horrifies me because the term inconclusive sounds a lot like a maybe to me. And in my experience, a maybe by a jury turns into a guilty verdict. So as far as polygraphs being admissible, thanks, but no thanks. Now, if you would have thought Bill Hunter's inconclusive results would have given Omaha pause in terms of continuing to give these polygraphs to everyone, well, think again, because they kept going. Next was one of Shirley's brothers, who also volunteered to submit to a polygraph. The exact date is unknown, as the report of that examination was missing from our discovery. His results showed some signs of deception. So they ended up calling him back to the station on July 10th of 2008 to discuss the results and his whereabouts on March 13th of 2008. Detective Scott Warner walked into the interview room and Shirley's brother was sitting quietly, scrolling through his phone. Warner pulled up a chair and sat down. I asked you in here today for a couple of reasons. As you recall, you previously submitted to taking a polygraph. And you're also aware that the results of that came back showing that there may have been some deception in your answers. Due to that, we believe that we need to inquire further as to your exact whereabouts on March 13th of this year. Okay, but do I need to get a lawyer in here? No, not at all. You're not a suspect. We got a little bit of a questionable result on your polygraph, and we just want to follow up on that. We wouldn't be doing our job if we didn't ask you where you were the day that your sister was killed. Okay, but what part of the test did I do poorly on? That's a fair question, but let me ask you this instead. What questions do you think that you had a problem with? Ah, the old answering a question with a question trick. Well, I have to tell you that when the guy started asking me specifics about my sister being stabbed or having knowledge of her being stabbed, I got very emotional. Not, not mad but emotionally upset. Well, 
That's completely understandable and, frankly, a normal response. And it wasn't just that time during the lie detector. Anytime anyone has asked me any questions, whether it's cops or friends or whatever, I just lose it. I can't handle it. I'm crushed by the whole thing. When anyone brings it up to me, in my mind, I almost always start picturing my sister being stabbed. It's just awful. Sir, I can't even imagine what you're going through. And this is exactly why we wanted to call you in to clear this up. Well, I have to tell you, that lie detector thing was a horrible experience. The whole thing was just too much for me to handle. The fact that you even asked me to do a lie detector about me killing my sister is unbelievable. It was a nightmare, and to be made to feel like I was a suspect or something made it even worse, if that's possible. Sir, I, I really do understand, truly. But let me ask you about your relationship with Shirley growing up. Were you guys close? Close? Yes, we were. We grew up together. We went to the same schools. We were very close when we were kids. We'd always be playing outside if it was nice. Sports and games with my other brothers and my cousins. How about when you got older? Oh, yeah. We, we both lived in Omaha our whole lives. I would never go more than a couple of weeks without seeing my sister. If I was driving by her neighborhood, I'd drive over by her house to see if her car was there. If it was, I'd stop by for a visit. If it wasn't, I'd keep on driving. How about on the phone? Did you call her often? Sure. I, I mean, we weren't every day talking on the phone close, but I, I considered us to be very close. Well, let me ask you about the 13th of March. Can you tell me where you were on that day? Well, yes, I can. I'll never forget that day as long as I live. I was doing a master bath remodel at a customer's house over around 106th Street. Do you recall exactly what you were working on that day? Well, the best that I can recall, I was pulling out some existing framing because it was crooked, and then I reframed the part that I just torn down. And how long did you work over there that day? I think I worked until about two, but I should have some receipts that show when I was at Menards for materials that I bought, and then I went to another Menards and returned some materials. Shirley's brother proceeds to dig around in his job file. He produces several receipts that show that at 7.20 in the morning, he was at Lowe's buying some materials. He then produced two more additional receipts from Menards. One showing a purchase at 2.49 p.m., and then a return of materials at a different Menards location at 3.01 p.m. Okay, these are very helpful. Uh, can you tell me what you did after the last trip to Menards at 3 p.m.? Well, I'm not 100% sure of this, but I think after 3 p.m., I probably went back to the job and worked some more. But if I didn't, I definitely went back to my shop on Center Street to restock my truck for the next day. But as I sit here today, I can't tell you exactly which place I went to after Menards. Okay, well, we're going to assume that you were at one of those two places. So where did you go when you left either one of those places? Well, I call it quits at about five every day. So I would have gone back home to get ready for my Shriners meeting that I had that night. And where's the Shriners and what time did you get there? It's over at 83rd and Maple. I got there around 6.30 and the meeting actually started at 7. 
and I stayed there till about 9.30. And where did you go from there? Home. And what did you do once you got home? Well, I ate, and I watched some TV. I'm usually in bed by around 1, but that horrible night at around midnight, someone in my family called to tell me that my sister had been killed. Do you remember any of the details of that day? Any other details? Did you work with somebody? I don't think I worked with anybody that day. My son works with me sometimes, but I don't believe he worked with me on that particular day. But to be honest, I, I really can't remember any more details. Warner thanked him for his time and terminated the interview. Assuming that Warner would be able to verify that Shirley's brother had gotten to the Shriners at about 6.30 p.m., Warner felt very comfortable about the concept of clearing him. While technically the brother could have killed his sister and Thomas and made it back home to clean up and then made it to the Shriners by 6.30, Warner's gut was telling him that he wasn't the guy. And notwithstanding his gut, Warner would do the job. He would check with the homeowner to make sure that the brother was there, in fact, for the better part of the day. And he additionally would swing by the Shriners just to verify what he was told. On June 12th of 2008, pursuant to a Crime Stoppers tip from a woman who stated that shortly after the murders, that she was in a bar called Dundee Dells. And she had what she would describe as a bizarre conversation with a man that she was meeting in the bar about potentially renting his apartment. We will call him Rob Gerber, which is not his real name. The tipster claimed that while she was in the bar talking to Rob Gerber about the potential apartment, that a story came on the news about the Hunter and Sherman murders. And it was at this point in time that she states that the conversation took a very bizarre turn. She went on to state that at the point in the story when Thomas Hunter's name came up, that this man, Rob Gerber, turned to her, looked her in the eyes, and said, that boy got what he deserved. This rocked her to her core. She was so stunned and upset by this comment that she felt in her bones that it warranted a call to the tip line. It did not take long for that tip to make its way to the desk of Detective Scott Warner who, in turn, was able to locate an address for Rob Gerber. So Warner jumps in his car and heads over to Gerber's apartment in order to inquire why in the world it was that he made such a bizarre statement to a complete stranger. Warner knocks on the door, and a stocky, well-built man in his mid-30s answers. Warner identifies himself and asks if he is, in fact, Rob Gerber, which the man at the door confirms. Warner asks if he can come inside to ask him a few questions about something that had happened at the Dundee Dells recently. Gerber agrees, but advises Warner that his 10-year-old and 14-year-old are in the back playing on the Xbox. Warner explains that he'll be quick and that the kids won't even know that he was there. And with that, Gerber invites him in. Now, Warner explains to him at this point that they had spoken briefly previously over the phone and that he was there to discuss an investigation that he was currently working on. Gerber looks back at Warner with a blank stare. This information clearly is not ringing any bells for Gerber. Warner then proceeds to get some background info before he digs in 
as to why he was there, which was to try and understand what would possess this man to say something so inflammatory to a woman that he does not know. And just as Warner is preparing to ramp up the conversation, we are shutting it down. Will Ron Gerber admit to saying what the tipster claims that he said? Has OPD found the Russian doctor? Find out all this and more on the next episode of Defense Diaries. Hey guys, Bob and Darren here. Thanks for listening. Hey, we just want to remind you, make sure that you subscribe, follow, listen, rate, review, share all of it on the socials and on anywhere that you get your pods because that is what helps the show grow. And when the show has grown to the appropriate point, we will no longer have to ask you to do this. So there's your carrot. Also, be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Defense Diaries and on Twitter at Defense underscore Diaries. We've also got an old man TikTok, which is at Defense Diaries Podcast. So check that out if you want to really, really have some fun at my expense. And finally, make sure that you check out our YouTube channel, which is Defense Diaries Podcast, because Darren has been very busy putting these episodes together. And currently we have episodes one and two up, and I think three is in production. D, can you verify that? Consider it verified, Bob. Thanks, man. And to all our patrons, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for your continued support. It means the world to us and to you, all of our listeners, all of you whom we adore more than you'll ever know. Thank you for listening, because without you, I'd just be an old man talking about an old case. Talking to you next time. <laughs>